Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, John Hudak's regular segment on what's happening in Congress. This week, Congress came back to work after midterm elections that dealt a real blow to uh, the Democratic Party, both in the House but particularly in the Senate. And immediately, Congress went back to work. They voted on in the Senate and failed to pass a bill that would authorize the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, a bill that fell one vote short of breaking the filibuster but was seen more as theatrics than an actual effort to change policy because as the new Congress takes over in January, there will be plenty of votes in the Senate to break that filibuster and to move the legislation forward in a way that will join with House-passed legislation on the topic. In addition, Congress has uh, noted that it would be considering certain pieces of legislation over the coming uh, weeks and in other areas not taking up uh, initiatives. For instance, the Senate has indicated that it will not be voting on the confirmation of the president's nominee for attorney general, Loretta Lynch. And as a result of that, it pushes that nomination into the next Congress, setting up what may be a difficult confirmation fight or a fight nonetheless with a Republican-controlled United States Senate. But it's an important debate to look, look at to see what the confirmation environment might be in the new Congress for the president's nominees. And finally, something important for Congress this week is actually happening outside of Congress, and that is the president choosing to issue an executive order on immigration. Congress, particularly Republicans in Congress, are irate at this presidential action, arguing that the president is overstepping his authority, Uh, he's acting like a king, and, and throwing a lot of charges at the White House over this. The reality, of course, is that presidents have fairly broad-based discretion both to enforce the law and to deal with immigration policy. And as the executive order is issued, we'll have a better understanding of what that looks like as well as understand what Republicans' responses to it are. Those responses will likely begin in the Congress in efforts to defund certain parts of agencies or to address the, uh, to address the policy head-on. But ultimately, this is a policy that will likely remain in place for the remainder of the president's term and the ultimate say on the legality or the propriety of the executive order will probably come from the courts. My guest today is an award-winning political scientist, former executive director of the American Political Science Association, once director of governmental studies at Brookings, author of over 100 articles and books, an expert on Congress, U.S. politics, campaigns, and elections, and perhaps most important to me personally, the person who hired me at Brookings. He is senior fellow Thomas E. Mann. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks, Fred. Really happy to be with you. So you're from Milwaukee. And you went to college in Florida and Michigan. When and why did you come to Washington? I had spent three years in Ann Arbor uh, working uh, toward my PhD in political science, uh, had only the dissertation remaining and felt the need to get some practical experience in politics before what I expected to be entering an academic career. Being a professor at a college or university someplace, so I applied for and won a congressional fellowship that began in November of 1969. I remember that date vividly because uh, I was staying in a in a house near Dupont Circle, and the first night there, I went out to see what was going on because there was a demonstration of against the war in Vietnam uh, that turned out to be a sort of historic uh, event. But I, being a good social scientist, I looked around, walked, and before I knew it, I was choking. I had uh, come upon tear gas. So my introduction to Washington was through tear gas. That is fantastic. Uh, and I was just three months old at the time. So uh, so you've been observing the scene here in Washington for a long time, for my entire lifetime, literally. What has kept you so interested in this field, in this topic? I became interested 
around the dinner table growing up. My father, who had no real formal education, uh, was an inveterate consumer of political information who believed in the uh, importance of, of politics and government, who led these conversations, pushed me into student politics and and giving radio commentary while in high school. So, so I – you know, I had a real appetite for politics. Then in college, I, I picked up an analytical interest in, uh, in politics and government. And instead of going to law school as I had planned, uh, my professors persuaded me to get a PhD in political science. I came to Washington and, and uh, it was the perfect place for me where, where I could get that up-close practical experience, understand our political institutions, our governing institutions uh, up-close. But I could also uh, be in a position where I could do more disinterested, uh, dispassionate, analytical work on, on politics. And I was blessed with uh, – with having wonderful vantage points from initially on the fellowship, working in Congress, then being at the American Political Science Association, getting a greater exposure to the academic world, and then for 27 years practicing um, my profession at Brookings. It was, uh, it was ideal. There was always something to learn, and there were there were publics to reach. Uh, I felt there was a real disjuncture between how our system operated and what people thought about it. It sounds like you found your passion early on and you found a place to really explore that passion. That's wonderful. In your time here in Washington, in your career, what are some of the, the, the best legislative and political outcomes you've seen and what are some of the worst? There have been a lot of ups and downs. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no questions uh, about that. Uh, I, I'd say among the best was the Tax Reform Act of 1986. I say that because the idea behind this uh, policy change uh, was hatched at Brookings uh, by Joe Peckman. Uh, his idea about tax reform, broadening the base and lowering the rates uh, uh, was the animating idea in this reform. But it was, it was put together as it should be. There was sort of good policy analysis. There, was, uh, there were individual leaders in the Senate and, and in the House in both parties uh, who, uh, who worked on this. There were sort of crafty old Pauls like Dan Rostenkowski um, who worked the process in a way that uh, he could build uh, the coalitional support to, uh, to get it done. And it was a it was a real achievement. So I look back on that as a, as a success. The other I'd point to was the immediate aftermath of, uh, of the terrorist attack of uh, 9-11. Uh, uh, this was uh, a traumatic event. Uh, uh, Congress uh, fully unprepared, as was the country for it. But what heartened me was the extent to which uh, dueling partisans sort of really came together, uh, uh, standing on the steps of the Capitol the day uh, uh, the day after the attacks and uh, and pledged to uh, to meet the challenge, to understand uh, why this happened and who did it and what can be done about it. Uh, now, these were two high points, but ironically, they, their, their lifetime was r relatively short, which, which carries an important lesson for politics and government more generally. Nothing, you never solve a problem. You manage a problem. Uh, you deal with something that helps temporarily, but then uh, it, uh, it's blown away. The Tax Reform Act of 86 was good, but – but Congress worked for decades after it to undo it uh, with 
special interest tax incentives such that our corporate and individual tax system is a mess right now. Similarly, the goodwill of the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was, uh, was followed by, uh, I think, a rapid uh, march to war in Iraq uh, after consensus over Afghanistan and, and some very partisan uh, uh, struggles and debates uh, after that fact. The goodwill could last only so long. Now. We've just had an election where the Republican Party gained a large majority in the Senate and perhaps its largest majority in the House since 1929. There's two years left in Obama's presidency. A Pew poll just came out that says that two-thirds of Republicans want GOP leaders to stand up to Obama even if less gets done in Washington. Now, I say this leading into the book that you uh, co-authored with AEI's Norm Ornstein two years ago. It's titled... It's even worse than it looks how the American constitutional system collided with the new politics of extremism. I'm going to quote something from that book and then ask you to react to it, considering the context where we are now. Quote, the Republican Party has become an insurgent outlier, ideologically extreme, contemptuous of the inherited social and economic policy regime, scornful of compromise, unpersuaded by conventional understanding of facts, evidence, and science, and dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. Except for that, they're a great political party. Uh, Fred, this was the single line that once written, uh, we knew would be the most quoted line, but uh, we felt it important to, to, uh, to make a gaffe. Uh, gaffes are speaking truths uh, in impolitic ways. Uh, it's very awkward for scholars at think tanks, for for establishment mainstream journalists, for people at NGOs and reform groups, uh, everyone. It's, it's very awkward to point out a fundamental asymmetry uh, between the parties that speaks ill of one of them. It looks as if you're being partisan, but there's no way to understand what's happened uh, to our political system over the last uh, several decades uh, uh, without distinguishing between the parties. The Democrats had their days of excesses in the 60s and 70s with the counterculture and the new left uh, uh, and paid a price uh, over the long term for those excesses. But uh, the Bork uh, nomination uh, uh, to the Supreme Court, which, uh, you know, which was defeated uh, in the Senate and became sort of ugly and personal when it could have been certainly more professional and substantive, uh, uh, came at the sort of tail end of, uh, of, of this period. But the Democrats sort of then got their act together, largely because of Bill Clinton and those around him who repositioned the Democrats as a center-left party. And, you know, they, they got tough on crime and passed welfare reform and, and took actions to uh, reduce the, the budget deficits and were strong internationally and and by and large, I think, regained some credibility and have been the favored party in presidential elections ever since. But the Republican Party underwent a series of changes whose seeds were really planted back in the, back in the 50s and with the Goldwater movement of, uh, of 19, 1964. But it was really the, the realignment of, uh, of the South after the Voting Rights Act and the the white conservative Democrats fleeing their party and moving into the Republican Party, the base of the party became the the South and the rural South uh, in particular. Republicans, once the champion of African Americans under Lincoln and stretching all the way to Richard Nixon, uh, uh, found themselves on the opposite side of that and on a host of uh, of other issues, um, um, uh, including the environment, uh, but also sort of taxes. They they became adamantly 
um, opposed to increasing taxes of any size for any purpose. And, and that became one of those uh, non-negotiable uh, uh, demands uh, by the party that complicated the task of building coalitions. Uh, but over time, uh, this took on new new meaning. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, certainly in the seventies and eighties, uh, uh, and. It's now at the point where the Republican Party has become like a parliamentary party, vehemently oppositional and, and opposed to anything that the other party would do. And, and I think the, the clauses of that sentence that you read are, are quite critical, but they're all rooted in reality. That is what has happened to the Republican Party, and it helps explain where we are in our politics today. Now, you call it a, a acting like a parliamentary party. Obviously, that works in a parliamentary system. Uh, why does it work in that system, and why wouldn't that work, or why doesn't it work in our system? It's a great question because it really goes to the heart of uh, the problem. Think about it. In a parliamentary system and especially Westminster style majority government side, the election is for individual members of the lower house and the the candidate who can get a majority of, uh, of those members of the lower house after the election becomes the prime minister and forms the cabinet uh, which really is in a position to put its program in place. Um, uh, they stay in government uh, for – in Britain, it's five years, give or take, because they can call election at any time. The opposition party can scream and raise hell and be critical, and it should, but it doesn't have consequences for the, for the business of governing because it's, it's a parliamentary government cabinet directed uh, with almost automatic support. Uh, in the parliament to enact those proposals. In our system, we elect the president separately from the House, which is elected separately from the Senate. Uh, therefore, we have the possibility uh, of electing branches of different parties, uh, so-called divided party government, even if, if, as happened with Obama in 2008, Democrats one across the board, um, you had to face a midterm elections a mere two years later with an electorate that was closer to 40 percent than the traditional 60 percent turnout uh, in a regular election. Traditionally, presidents' parties lose seats at midterm and as happened to the Democrats, they lost the House. It was a big election for the Republicans and since then, uh, the president hasn't been able to do anything legislatively because the Republicans would oppose it. They weren't playing ball or engaging in negotiations. While in his first two years with a unified party government and for part of that first two years, having 60 votes sufficient for cloture to cut off filibusters, he was able to get a lot done. So it, it turns out our system of government uh, – is is designed to prevent, uh, in many respects, uh, uh, any particular majority from uh, uh, from taking hold and running, running away with it. it. It the framers tried to develop incentives for those who would be chosen uh, to serve in the executive and legislative branches, which would both lead them to protect the prerogatives of their branches, but to engage one another in serious discussions, deliberation, negotiation, bargaining, and, and compromise. Right now, when the parties are so distant from one another, when they're engaged in this competitive game for control of the majority, um, you don't see that kind of bargaining and uh, negotiation, and yet our system can't work without it. Now, that, uh, that attunes to governing, to legislating. But it seems to me that a lot of uh, a lot of people in the country, a lot of voters, are sending to Congress 
uh, senators and representatives who expressly do not want to legislate, who do not want to govern. And it's, it's a legitimate point of view from their point of view. Uh, and how, um, how has it been different in the past? That's, that's part of the asymmetry that I'm talking about because those surveys that you refer to indicate there's really a huge difference between Republican voters and Democratic voters uh, on this question. Do you think it's, it's more important to stand on principle or compromise in order to get something done? About three-quarters of Republicans tend to say stand on principle um, while a majority of Democrats say compromise to get some things done. It, it, that means uh, the Republicans coming to office aren't acting against the wishes of their constituents. Mind you, they don't represent non-voters very well, but in the districts they represent, people are telling them that and activists are telling them, don't give in to them. It's, it's, it's sort of high principle. It's ideology, but it's also a question of values. Many Republican rank and file voters just don't accept the legitimacy of Barack Obama. He's not a real American and, and he's a socialist and trying to destroy what the, what the country is about. And that, that doesn't mean every elected Republican in Washington feels that way, but some of them do and, and they know that's the sentiment out there in the country. You get less of that um, from Democrats in part because they are the party of government. They're the party that has always believed government had to fill in the holes in the, in the market system. It had to make sure the markets were operating uh, uh, safely and honestly and, and that certain people would be left behind, that certain public goods like – like a defense and like open lands and clean air would uh, would need to be supplied through public action. So they they tend they they're used to dealing with coalitions and working out deals and cutting the differences. But right now the Republican Party, especially the people more engaged with more information, more active, uh, really feel strongly that. Uh, they're challenging 100 years of policy development, really going back to Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, you know, just opposition to the regulatory system, not just some regulations, but regulations as a whole. That's the administrative state by which most democracies uh, uh, operate. But they, they've, they've come to believe that uh, having big big social programs, uh, really including Medicare and certainly the Affordable Care Act, uh, now are, uh, are very destructive of our individual liberties and, and they're involved too much in transferring resources to people who don't carry the, their own load, you know. Uh, and, and so that's a... That's a kind of cultural clash now that reinforces the just simple policy differences and competitive uh, spirits of the parties. So why is that attitude ascendant today, this attitude that uh, let's abolish the Fed, let's get rid of the amendment for di direct election of senators, some people have said. Uh, why is that ascendant today? I mean, it's not just Barack Obama. No, Bill Clinton uh, ran into similar things. You know, there was not – I mean there were a lot – there was a lot of sort of public attacks. He, a month didn't go by in his eight years in the White House that he wasn't being investigated. Uh, remember Whitewater? Uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial page hired a separate investigative staff and published – multi-volumes on all of these crimes committed uh, by the Clintons but somehow never passed the test of uh, prosecutors or, uh, or, or others. So you, you're right. It's, it's, it's been around for a while but it's been reinforced, uh, uh, reinforced lately. Uh, I think part of it uh, goes to – uh, a member of Congress that I met when shortly after he was first elected in 1978, a very, 
bright, entrepreneurial, uh, ambitious, visionary uh, politician named Newt Gingrich. Uh, uh, we held, Norm Ornstein and I held a series of dinner meetings with eight newly elected members of the House of Representatives, the class of 78, included Newt, Dick Cheney, Geraldine Ferraro, others of, of, of some note. But Newt outlined his strategy. He was up against the almost permanent Democratic control of the House and Senate. Uh, I mean, it was really extraordinary how far that reached. Um, and he he saw his party leaders going along with Democrats. They could do that because there were conservative Democrats in the party and they could form coalitions. They could be part of deals put together in committees. But Newt wanted a Republican majority and he he set out on a strategy that said if we can discredit this institution while Democrats are in control, uh, we can get the public to throw the Democrats out of power. And what ensued over the next 16 years was a, a strategy of doing just that. Himself, his colleagues in the Senate and new, in the House and new candidates that came forward with uh, the politicization of ethics charges and and basically saying these 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 people are criminal at heart they're not they don't have american interest uh, at heart this is a tactic for newt uh, and a a part of a a strategy uh, i think he hoped once the republicans took control and he was speaker that it could return to governing mode but but in fact it really unleashed a, a set of participants in politics on the republican side uh, a set of activist expectations of how you treat your enemy we then saw the emergence of the partisan media, the Rush Limbaugh uh, radio shows and Fox News. And we began to get in a position of denouncing the opposition. It, it wasn't that they were just your adversaries, but they were your enemies. And that, I think, helped propel the direction of the, uh, of the Republican Party over these decades. Now, in addition to in addition to that, how important uh, to understanding some of today's political dysfunction are issues? People point to these issues like money in politics, gerrymandered districts, uh, and you just mentioned the the new media. Yeah, um, people probably put too much attention on those matters. Uh, for example, gerrymandering, which is the the drawing of redrawing of district boundaries after every decennial census, those typically are in the hands of state legislatures. If, if one party controls that process, they try to draw the lines in ways that help themselves because they redraw state legislative boundaries as well as uh, uh, congressional uh, boundaries. And the idea is they produce safer and safer districts for one party or the other that produces more extreme members. Um, to some extent, that's, uh, that's true. But serious scholarly research on this has shown that, um, that it, it's, hard, uh, it, it's hard to do this to both make – incumbents safe and increase your number of incumbents. So the, the party interest goes against the incumbent protection interest. And, and so if you try to expand your numbers to get a majority or a little larger majority, then you inevitably weaken some of those seats. So when a, a national tide comes through an election, you might lose some of your own, uh, own members. So Basically, Republicans have an advantage now in in uh, in House districting, but it has more to do with the the way Republican voters are distributed across the country uh, compared to Democrats. Democrats tend to cluster in urban areas, um, uh, moderate liberal uh, views. Republicans, mainly conservative views are to be seen in outer suburbs and rural areas, more expansive. And it's just easier to draw districts, even nonpartisan districts uh, by process that 
where you can have a majority of 60 percent instead of 85 percent in the urban areas. And, and so in the 2012 election, Democrats won one and a half million more votes for the House uh, than Republicans, but Republicans, uh, you know, ended up with uh, 17 more seats uh, in uh, in the House. Uh, so these, you know, these things have part of it is just people have moved depending on their values and beliefs and party attachments. We've we've had a sorting of Americans, uh, uh, those of a conservative orientation changing in the moving toward uh, Republican candidates and Democrats uh, the opposite way. So it's both geographical, it's psychological, it's, it's the pattern of, uh, of the vote that really uh, flows as a result of these changes. Money, for example, certainly has been a, uh, a huge issue in our politics, especially in recent years following some some very controversial Supreme Court decisions that have unleashed uh, or freed up new forms of political organization to spend money on campaigns that heretofore was uh, was either not possible or or not convenient enough to attract those. And the worry is that that money itself is having a polarizing impact. What I would say is that it's disturbing, but not on grounds of polarization. Um, uh, basically, these polarizing developments began way before the role of money increased so dramatically in our politics. And uh, in, in, in sort of many respects, um, uh, sort of small donors are as strongly uh, uh, polarized as uh, large donors in terms of their attachment to party uh, just on the you know a, a, a sliver of the electorate are real activists in politics and give money even $200 contributions or $50 contributions to give that money you have to care and you have to know something and have a reason to give and it's not good government. It's it's you know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who's going to help you know my people, and who's not. And and so I think the worry about money is that the huge increase in economic inequality that uh, that has come to characterize America in in the last couple of decades uh, runs the risk of creating more political inequality. I mean, we believe in one person, one vote, and every citizen has the right to vote. But it, but in fact, um, there are more re resources in the top 1 percent or the top 0.01 uh, percent that are dedicated to politics than, you know, million, tens of millions of, uh, of, uh, of other Americans. And over time, uh, that uh, could be it, – it's certainly worrisome and worthy of attention, but it ought to get attention directly and not be seen as – it's a separate problem uh, at, than, than extreme partisan polarization. But it reinforces that problem because you get each of the parties with the incentives uh, to raise that big money, to get – money like that spent on behalf of your vulnerable candidates. And so it increases the, the sense of the importance of partisan team play, which works against uh, negotiation and compromise. Let me put a plug in here for um, the, the book Billionaires by our colleague Daryl West. And he explores the problem of uh, the, the wealthiest people and their involvement in politics. And he says they're, they're really not like the average uh, American voter. I also did a podcast with him, so That's I commend right. that to to everybody. Um, some of these concerns seem to me somewhat secondary uh, to the uh, to the main issue, which is that in as you said earlier, in midterm elections, especially maybe forty percent, fewer than forty percent of people actually go out and vote. That's right. It uh, and so you, I mean, you can get as we did in two thousand ten. Um, uh, you can get a a. Uh, a huge, uh, in this case, victory for the party out of power 
um, and you say, oh, my God, all these people turned against Obama. But if you look at the exit polls of people who voted, uh, a majority um, uh, said they they voted for John McCain for president. So the people who turned out uh, were Republicans. It's not that they were Democrats changing their mind about about Barack Obama. Now, part of that is because they're more older people. They're they're sort of whiter. They're married and sort of establishment. But but part of it is. When times are are tough, and and I'll tell you, they were still tough after the first two years of the Obama uh, presidency. Uh, the global financial crisis and great economic recession, uh, you know, was tough, difficult. Uh, progress was made. The objective indicators were turning up, but many Democrats were just disenchanted, uh, and so. That produced an electorate that that gave us divided party government, which produces outcomes that the public hates. They think Washington is broke. Why won't Congress just agree and get things done? Well, it's because the nature of our elections and you mainly vo- voting consistent with your political party produce branches of government that are controlled by different parties and and then you tell them to stand by their principles. <laughs> it's a little hard to see. Um, it's it's partly a pogo problem. Uh, the, it, this is not nefarious, uh, destructive political elites ignoring the wishes of the country. The public has various wishes. You know, one is to get along, but they don't get along with their fellow uh, citizens. And and the challenge of our government is to reconcile sort of conflicting interest in, in, in some way to find a mode short of physical violence, of acknowledging the differences and figuring out solutions that both sides are willing to live with. So speaking of solutions, let's uh, pivot a little bit to uh, some of the solutions you talk about in the book. Now, you actually, with Norm Ornstein, talk about um, some bromides and you actually knock some of those down including the system will fix itself. If people don't like the one uh, party in the way it's going, they'll vote for the other party, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. Uh, you talk about uh, maybe third-party candidates uh, and the problems with that, or some people say, let's just have a balanced budget amendment, or let's have term limits, or let's have full public financing. You knock all these down in the book, and you propose some other solutions. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah. Um, we we acknowledge this is difficult. Uh, there's you know, we've talked about the fundamental mismatch between our parties and our political institutions, and there's not going to be any simple solution or fix to it. What we we say is you could try to make the parties a little less polarized, uh, and they might be able to work more effectively in our separation of powers system. And for that, we we recommend or at least offer for consideration various kinds of, of uh, changes. One that uh, is perhaps the most controversial is, is uh, mandatory attendance at the polls like Australia and a dozen or more other countries have. You don't have to pick a candidate, but you've got to show up at the polls or you pay a fine. This, this greatly increases the size of the electorate and it means – Political parties and candidates have no incentive to spend huge amounts of money trying to turn out their voters and to to demobilize the opposition's voters. That is, there's a fight over the nature and size of the electorate that that takes precedence over any kind of disagreement about issues or appeal to people who might be less ideological and less politicized. But you know that that's in conflict with our values of political freedom but i think there may be a possibility of getting a couple of states to actually try uh try this out i think it's the most promising the other thing we could do is just to have somewhat different um electoral uh uh rules uh we could Instead of having single-member districts, we could pass a national law that would allow multi-member districts and and that tends to reduce the polarization, produces 
possibility of even third parties at times. Um, we talk about the primary process and and the very low levels of participation, possible change in primaries uh, that might lead to higher levels of participation and more potential voters having the incentive to uh, uh, to turn out to vote. So their panoply of those make the parties less polarized. Uh, the other side, well, if you can't change the parties, how about trying to alter the institutions to make them more suitable for parliamentary-like parties? Well, the, the best way is to replace our system with a parliamentary system, but that's not going to happen. It's a it's it's hardwired in our constitution. Even a constructive change would be to eliminate midterm elections and have everyone uh, on a four-year cycle in national elections the same one. That would that would tend to produce more unified governments, and I think would be very helpful. Um, the other thing is to at least make it easier when you do have unified government to actually get things done, and so. That's where the Senate filibuster arises. It used to be an infrequently used device uh, uh, whereby a handful of uh, senators would take and hold the floor to keep a vote from coming up on something they care deeply about. But over time now has uh, morphed into a routine supermajority requirement of 60 votes uh, in a 100-member Senate. It's, it's used formally, informally. It leads to holes by individual uh, senators. It now leads to partisan strategies of uh, filibuster threats uh, by the minority, and then the majority uh, uh, decides to offer all these amendments in advance and fills the amendment tree, something in Senate rules that makes it impossible for the minority to get votes on issues. And so you get these this uh, intensified war over procedures that keeps, uh, keeps things from happening and from majorities to happen. So we have a number of institutional reform. We talk about building on the experience of the Federal Reserve and seeing if there aren't other areas where you could delegate some power to individuals operating on a commission, say, in health uh, policy reform, uh, where where you you protect them a bit from the from the access seeking special interest and the ideological wars just to get things done. These are incremental steps. In the end, we say the problem with these reforms is that our politics so polarized now, you couldn't get the reforms approved uh, 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 because each party calculates what how the change would affect their their uh, their political well being and uh, and disagree as a, as a consequence. So uh, it's important to deal with these and talk about them. There's nothing magical about our system. In nothing unusually admirable either. We, our American exceptionalism does not carry to our political institutions, which, which really have shortcomings in these environments. And we really ought to be open to, uh, to changes. But in the short term, uh, what, what we need are unified governments rather than divided governments until the parties start overlapping a little bit more and show some willingness to negotiate across uh, across lines and we need the public to send signals that if a that a that a that a party emphasizing sort of ideological purity and uh, principle over pragmatism uh, is is should be punished, not rewarded. But that's a public education job, and I'm not, I'm not sure uh, proponents of that view will be successful. Uh, well, I I do commend uh, the book to uh, to anyone listening. You and Norm Ornstein have a lot of great ideas in that. Um, let's look ahead a little bit. Let's look ahead to 2016 um, and the the presidential. Uh, race. I know it's too early to speculate on the candidates. But you can if you want to. But what sorts of issues and other things are you going to be paying attention to for that race? 
first a word about the the respective races. Interestingly, uh, Republicans usually have an heir apparent who moves, you know, who's favored long time in advance, whose t- whose turn it is, and and you tend to get uh, less intense competition. I mean, there are exceptions. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, with Reagan early on running and uh, and losing to Gerald Ford and and Bush running against Reagan, and so we, but that's the usual pattern. While Democrats, you know, you never know who's going to come out of the uh, the blue. We've had a lot of surprise candidates like Jimmy Carter and and Bill Clinton, and uh, and certainly Barack Obama was not uh, seen by many to be a plausible candidate. But this time around, uh, it looks to have flipped. That is, the field is absolutely wide open on the Republican side, while on the Democratic side, it appears that if Hillary Clinton decides, as seems likely to run, that that she will win the nomination. Mind you, she's going to have to be a better candidate than she was running against Obama in 2008. She's going to have to deal with the diversity within her party, the anxiousness on the left of the party, the infatuations with people like Elizabeth Warren and uh, and others. But my guess is she would manage that. And and so the real issue comes down to the economy. If, if the economy is perked up, I think Democrats uh, under Clinton would likely win, even though it's unusual for a party to extend its, its control of the White House beyond two terms. It's happened, obviously, with Franklin Roosevelt. It, uh, it went on for four straight elections before the terms were limited uh, in the Constitution. And, and we saw it with Reagan-Bush, uh, certainly, but it's, it's, it's difficult. Uh, but it could have happened with Al Gore. And after two years of Bill Clinton, you know, he won the popular vote but lost the electoral uh, vote. Um, my guess is that given the advantages Democrats have in the presidential electorate, if the economy is doing well and Hillary Clinton is the nominee, Democrats would be the favored candidate. Uh, but uh, I think it'd be very hard for them to win back the House. They have a shot at the Senate. The seats up in 2016 favor the Democrats. But the likelihood would be another divided party government, which is not really very optimistic. So I, I mean, my comment is those of you who want Hillary Clinton to be president ought to be spending as much time figuring out how to elect a Democratic House uh, and Senate along with her. Otherwise, you're going to be as frustrated as you have been the last years. If the economy struggles and Republicans nominate a candidate who is not beyond the pale, uh, who is not Ted Cruz, um, um, who's acceptable, um, I think uh, they could win uh, under those circumstances and would likely have a unified Republican government. And then we'd test whether a party we have called extreme and radical uh, would moderate as governors with with the full responsibility of governing, they could do that or they could try to embrace their current agenda and push it through. And then we'd have to see how the American people feel about it. But those are the considerations. I mean, I, I yeah, they'll talk about issues, but economic inequality and opportunities for the middle class are going to be at the core of this. But it it in the end, what moves it is, are people feeling better or worse? Are they optimistic uh, or pessimistic? Uh, it isn't so much the precise solutions that a party is offering as, as, as it is, are they the right party for the times? Uh, um, so that's, that's how, I, how I see 2016 shape up. Well, th- thanks for that. That was really interesting. Let's, let's, uh, let's wind down. Uh, in this way, uh, Tom, I understand that you're after 27 years leaving Brookings. Where are you going, and what will you be doing? Well, I'm leaving Brookings physically. I'm I'm formally retiring full time after 27 years here. Uh, uh, Sheila and I are moving to Northern California, the Bay Area. Uh, 
our two children and two grandchildren have now all uh, uh, chosen to live indefinitely in San Francisco. And and we decided, being a continent away from uh, our two kids and two very young grandchildren, was uh, was not very desirable. So we've sold our house. We've rented a smaller house in Oakland. I will be affiliated with the University of California at Berkeley. I'll have an office in the Institute of Governmental Studies. I'll be working on some of the same issues that I have been. I'll teach occasionally, and I'll remain a senior fellow of Brookings. I'll write papers and blogs and come back a couple of times a year for events. But what I what I think is just I've been in this town for 45 years. I've Norm and I have now written two successive books, The Broken Branch and It's Even Worse Than It Looks. We've 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 done our damnedest to get the story straight, lay it out, uh, offer the best of our opinions. We've we've been rewarded with a lot of attention to the books. They've Especially this last one has been a real commercial success. We've sold over 85,000 copies, if you can imagine. I'm not used to that. Uh, and, and now it's time, you know, I think, to look back on Washington and at the country from a different, uh, a different vantage point. So I just think the change will be energizing. I don't want to... I don't want to become an angry old man. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to sort of let my frustrations with the particular dynamic our politics is caught in now lead me uh, to become pessimistic. Because I'm inherently an optimistic uh, person. I love Brookings. It's the. It's the. It's. I can't imagine a better place to to build a career and the the links between the world of politics and policy and academe in uh, the independence and the freedom to, to say what I believe uh, I know as a result of research and uh, have the willingness to change my mind if the evidence dictates that Brookings is fabulous. And that's why I'm going to keep affiliated uh, and uh, you're not going to get rid of me entirely. Good. We don't want to. And Tom, let me just say it's been uh, such an honor and pleasure to not only interview for this podcast, but have worked for you uh, back in the past and to work with you since then. Uh, thanks again for your time today, Tom. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. To learn more about Tom Mann and his work, visit our website at brookings.edu. That's it for the podcast today. If you have any questions for Tom, John, or any guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. This podcast is made possible with Zach Colzer's tremendous editing and production skills. Jessica Pavone's talented artwork, and the terrific web support offered by Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahin. Our intern is Charmaine Crutchfield. If you have any feedback for guests of the show or any input at all, send your emails to bcp at brookings.edu. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and now listen to us on Stitcher. Links to everything discussed in the podcast are on the show's webpage on brookings.edu slash bcp.